Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Solari Gentile. Solari Gentile is the award-winning author of the Roland Sinclair Mysteries, as well as the novel Crossing the Lines. Roland Sinclair is now up to his 10th adventure, so today Solari joins me to discuss A Testament of Character. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungara people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'd love it if you could help me help others to discover uh, great new Australian books and stories by giving us a rating and leaving a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. Your ratings help put Final Draft in front of more eyes in the podcast world and let more people know that we're out there. So today on the show... A Testament of Character begins with Roland and his entourage in Singapore. Their adventures have kept them away from Australia and they're going to be away a little while longer. Before returning home, Roland must divert his path again, this time to America. He is summoned to take on the sad duty of executor of his old friend Daniel Cartwright's estate. Cartwright has been murdered and Roland arrives in Boston to a family tempest as the Cartwrights fight to see Daniel's fortune settled on them. When the will bequeaths the estate to a mysterious stranger named Otis Norcross, it soon becomes clear that Roland is going to have a job of keeping both himself and Daniel's intentions in one piece. The Roland Sinclair Mysteries are one of my favourite Australian series, so join me today as we discover Solari Gentile's A Testament of Character. I'm pleased to welcome once again Solari Gentile. Thanks for joining me on Final Draft. Our absolute pleasure as always, Andrew. And we have got the 10th Roland Sinclair book. But look, before we get into it, uh, before I even mention the title, I want to introduce, for the uninitiated, Roland Sinclair. He is the playboy hero of your now 10-book series that takes place in the interwar period in the 20th century. He is the youngest member of the Sinclair family. And Roland, well, he's much more at home in his studio than in the boardroom. However, his progressive attitudes ensure that he gets a regular kicking from the proponents of the rising tide of fascism that is growing in the 1930s. Now, the latest book is called A Testament of Character, and as A Testament of Character begins, Roland and his entourage, they're in Singapore following uh, the previous the previous book where they had... Um, well, Roland had gotten himself beaten up in, in Shanghai uh, uh, while solving a mystery. Now, Roland's adventures have kept him away from Australia as he awaits the scandal of uh, a dangerous language to blow over. But before returning home, Roland must divert his path again, this time to America. Roland has to take on the sad duty of executor of his dear friend Daniel Cartwright's estate. Cartwright has been murdered, and as Roland arrives in Boston, he finds himself amidst a family tempest as the Cartwrights fight to see Daniel's fortune settled on them. When the will bequeaths the estate to a mysterious stranger named Otis Norcross, it soon becomes clear that Roland is going to have a job of keeping both himself and Daniel's intentions in one piece. Now, Solari, on the face of it, you've given us a classic whodunit. There's a raft of suspects all motivated by the wealth of Daniel Cartwright. This is a much darker story, though. By the time the killer is is actually revealed, their identity, I found, or, or, or this is what I found, their identity is almost secondary to their motive. Did you feel a tonal shift in this novel? Uh, yes. Well, I think um, the, the, the way the story unfolds for me is uh, it, 
is progressive, organic, um, because I don't plot. So when I started the story, um, I had no idea that it would go uh, in the direction that it did. Oh, and, and, and to be honest, I never have any idea that a story is going to go in any particular direction. Uh, but this, but that this took me into these areas of um, American culture and world culture and, and human interaction um, was interesting. And the, the eventual culprit and her motivation, uh, as, as you say, the, the culprit was um, irrelevant. Her motivation was uh, what, what was really distinctive. And in the end, I think what was particular about this story is that even given the trappings of money and power and all the other reasons that you may want to kill someone, in the end, it is human hurt and resentment, which is the, by far the most powerful motivator in, in actually um, taking a life or, or reacting with, with rage. And to, to be honest, I think um, when, I was, when I was a lawyer, um, I, I, was, I used to work in corporate law, and it was something that I discovered in the process of, you know, dealing with really large contracts and really large litigations that often went into several millions of dollars. As much as people talked in terms of bottom lines and, and issues that were abstract and separate, um, in the end, often what turned something sour or made it a good deal was the the human relations that were involved in issues like trust. And I think that might be something of the tonal shift that I, I felt in the novel. There are real repercussions that arise out of a testament of character for Roland, for Edna, Milt and Clyde, um, Roland's friends who are, are always accompanying him on these adventures. And and these are perhaps even changes that we will see uh, reverberating throughout the, the next many books, especially... Uh, yeah, uh, look, I, sorry. So, so, yeah, look, I, I think it, it actually has led to a... A sort of a, there's always character development right through the series, but every now and then something happens that's a seismic change. Mm. And this book felt like a seismic change in relationships and in their own knowledge of their own limitations and, um, and, and in some ways a, a strengthening of their bond, mm. but also the bond and the, the loyalty and the, the Scooby, Scooby Group, as you were fond of calling them, <laughs> was actually tested with real repercussions and real pain and real danger. Yeah, I, and and these are not just events that happen in the book and move forward. As Roland is forced to defend his position as executor to the family, he also has to reflect and kind of question himself a little bit in his past. He He has to admit to his friends that, Daniel, um, Daniel Cartwright, whom he had met at university, Daniel was gay and that Roland did not react well when he discovered this at university. And it seemed like a really a particularly difficult confession to put in your hero's mouth. Like Roland's character arc has always seemed to be moving him firmly towards this 
strong resistance to oppression is yeah. is the a testament of uh, is a testament of character something of a trial of fire for him? I think so, and I, and I think also um, a testament of character actually reveals that Roland didn't wasn't born the man he is in 1936, um, and we we all develop, progress, and hopefully get better, learn things about ourselves and about other people, and hopefully uh, develop into better people over time. So there were things that young Roland did that he is wholly ashamed of as a a man of 30. Um, And there are, are things that affected him to make him the man he was. And certainly um, Daniel Cartwright being gay, and quite often, quite often in my novels, I don't actually comment on a on a character's sexuality because unless it's relevant to the plot, it's none of my business. Um, and so Daniel Cartwright, when he appeared in um, uh, what was it, the kind of prophets? Yeah, the kind of prophets was when Daniel Cartwright made his first appearance in the series, and the, the Scooby Gang. Uh, went to stay with him in his home in New York uh, for some time during that book. And he was always as flamboyant and gregarious and over-the-top as he is described in this book. Um, but at the time, it was, you know, what his sexuality was was not pertinent. It was not important. Um, and, and certainly it seemed to make sense that Roland wouldn't comment on it um, and neither would the others. They just accepted it. And bearing in mind that they're from a very bohemian set, and so whilst in the 1930s um, sexual freedom isn't what it is today, um, you're talking about the most progressive of people mm. um, in, in that particular context. When Roland uh, deals with Daniel's um, Will and his family this time around, he has to admit that he wasn't always as accepting. And he also has to admit, he has to look back into his own past when he met Daniel at a particularly traumatic time in his life um, and, and how that relationship and friendship that he had with a man who was openly uh, at Oxford, a gay man, actually uh, helped him become the man he is uh, in 1936, uh, the progressive person that he is in 1936. Um, But certainly it was not always the case. A Testament of Character also really challenges with its depictions of violence. I know that uh, that you and I have joked in the past about the beatings you give Rolly in his books, and I, I keep telling you one day, you know, he, he's he's just going to have to deal with the next few um, instalments with a concussion. Uh, I thought I was particularly gentle on him this time. 
<laughs> I, I, well, so I, I almost thought the, the opening third of the book, I thought, gosh, you've, you've taken my advice on board. He's going to get off lightly this time. But then violence becomes a particularly brutal tool of power. And it's, it's used not only against Roland, but, but also against Edna. And this was, a, I, I thought, a huge challenge to the character that you have written for Ed, who is so strong, so independent. This is so much about, uh, so much of how her interactions are with everyone she meets. Can you talk a little bit about Ed and what she goes through um, in in the book? Certainly. So for the first time, um, Edna is actually physical. Oh, well, not the first time. She has been in danger before, but in this particular circumstance, the, uh, the danger is um, entirely because she is Roland Sinclair's friend. Um, and and nothing of her own making, um, and she and and there's a very sexual element to the danger, and it, it's a really it's a very overt sexual threat uh, in what happens to Edna, mm-hmm. and for for a woman who has who's a bit, um, well, someone may say before her time, but I hate to use that term in, uh, in reference to gender equity because it should never be before time. Uh, but she's certainly ahead of what the normal um, cultural uh, norms are for that period. And she's independent and she doesn't, there's, uh, doesn't ever want to be, belong to a man and she doesn't want to be told what to do. Um, she believes that she can stand up for herself and defend herself. And she is overpowered, completely overpowered. But the difference is when Ed, there's when um, Roland is beaten up and he is overpowered and he is in physical danger. The danger is simply physical. Um, for Edna, it is this whole notion that she is like every other woman vulnerable in situations where you're dealing with men and violence. And, and and Roland reacts as um, as in, in some ways um, in a not surprising way he wants to protect her. His first instinct is just to pull up pull up and to leave the country and to forget about Daniel's will, to forget about um, being the executor, to just to just to go. Um, because as much as he will put himself in danger, it's a far more difficult thing, I think, to watch someone you love being in danger um, and watch someone you love being attacked and being a victim. Um, and he, he finds that almost overwhelming. Um, but I, I think Edna says something um, in, in that process um, which actually encapsulate <laughs> her attitude to it. And and she says to them, and she says to Roland, you know, you and Clyde and Milton do, you know, risk your lives all the time in the name of principle. And don't you dare deny me the right to do something stupid in the name of principle. Yeah, it was, it was so brutal to watch that, though, too, because you, you juxtapose that attack with an attack on... Clyde, I'm pretty sure it was. And yes. first there is the, the sexual element of the attack that 
is is never present in the attacks on the on the male characters and then their reaction that you know Edna Edna may express concern but she would never do that to them and it is just such an amazing moment the way she she stands up and 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 kind of brings them to their knees in um in their the hypocrisy yeah she does she absolutely she absolutely floors them and she um and, and breaks them in that because they can see that. Um, I mean, they they can't help feeling what they feel because they are men of their time and they've been raised to defend women. Um, and that's not that's not a bad thing. It's not an evil thing to want to protect women. Uh, but where it becomes problematic is where it's at the expense of their individuality and their freedom. And I think she could actually, even even though she was suffering at the time, and her her instinct at the time was also to curl up and try and protect herself. She could she could see that if she allowed that to happen, then it would never change, and that would always be the case. She would be, be this precious piece of glass that was always protected. Um, and as much as she could see, it was because the men around her loved her. She couldn't let that happen. Mm. And so she fought back um, very hard to to maintain that sense of proportion in, in some way because, um, uh, this, uh, as you saw, when Clyde was attacked, it was, you know, oh, this is dreadful, but nobody ever thought about pulling up sticks and going home. As I alluded at the beginning of our conversation, a testament of character presents in that classic whodunit mould. But uh, as our conversation has unfolded, I think it's it's really apparent how much the psychology of of the whole situation plays into what Roland must deal with. I was I was really struck by the conversation that Roland has with the Boston police. Um, and the discussion, uh, the, the way it sort of turns to the way prejudice may, in, fa- in fact, impact on the investigation. Now, you have Detective O'Brien reassure Roland, uh, rest assured, Mr. Sinclair, in Boston, murder is murder, regardless of who the victim is. But, of course, um, that may seem an odd statement to people's ears at the moment, particularly uh, sort of in the context of America. Have you been struck lately by the way this discussion of authority and power has exploded? Oh, certainly. And certainly when that policeman was talking to Roland, he was talking about white victims. He wasn't talking about any other kind of victims. Um, And I think his point was in relation to whether uh, Daniel Cartwright was an upstanding member of society or um, a a scandalous um, homosexual. Mm. Um, but uh, and and certainly it would not even occur to him to think in the context of black victims um, at the time. I look. I it's what's happening in America is um, uh, startling and tragic and empowering at the same time. It, I was I was in America in late October, November, and. And certainly we were very aware of the notion that the American police were not um, the same thing as the Australian police. And we were, and, and I do remember being in New York and it was the only time that I saw, I was in a building and something must have happened and the police came in 
And I remember for the first time realizing that I was afraid of that uniform. Um, and I don't know whether it's, you know, uh, what you hear and what you read from America all the time, but I was struck by that because in Australia, that's never, never been the case. I've never been frightened uh, by a police uniform or a police car. And, um, and so it did, did actually um, strike me as a difference. So, of course, in Australia, we have our own problems as well. It's not, it's not that we are above that in Australia. Um, it just seems to be, um, it, America just seems to be the kind of place where everything is bigger and harder and more. And so their, their violence and their injustice is bigger and harder and more. Um, and, and so you have situations like what happened to George Floyd, uh, complete outrageous. But on the other hand, you know, difficult thing is that, you know, as, as safe as I feel in Australia, you know that we have had incidences in Australia where, where, where black lives have not, not ended as much as white lives. We, we do know that black deaths in custody. Uh, are reaching levels that are appalling. Um, that 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 certainly in in recent times, in the last you know decade or so, there has been a swing back to that kind of deep hatred um, between between people that I was not aware of when I was growing up in Australia. There was um, I, I often have this conversation with my son to a who are young men of colour growing up in Australia now. And I never, ever faced as much overt uh, hostility and prejudice as they face um, on a daily basis. Uh, and, and there seems to have been a change in the entire culture of the world where we have gone backwards in a lot of ways. And um, everything that we thought we had achieved or were heading towards seems to have been wound back uh, in the last couple of decades. You gave me pause to think about how... um how we come to sort of conceptualise the police. And I guess for a lot of people, and I guess if if we're thinking about a lot of uh, readers in America, in Australia, who are uh, white dominant culture, um, who have very few interactions with the police, perhaps they're getting a lot of these conceptions from books. And if you're a, if you're a fan of mysteries, if you're a fan of detective fiction, the police might start to look like the the well-meaning but slightly inept, you know, Inspector Lestrade from Sherlock yeah. Holmes, and you may have this this sense that the police are uh, the good guys, well-intentioned but not particularly effective, and and that may really impact the way people are engaging. And it, when I saw O'Brien and you. You very much centre O'Brien. So in Boston at the time, uh, for the American police, there would have very much been that that contest between and that prejudice between whether you are Catholic or Protestant that may have played out in in situations of authority. But you gave this reflection of a, a police system that could and potentially was being impacted by prejudice. Yeah, and and of course, every institution can be impacted by prejudice. I mean, that's the whole. Um, issue and the struggle against uh, institutional or systemic 
prejudice. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a um, I did an interview with uh, Renietta Lodge, who wrote a book called um, "Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race." And now that was a particularly confronting title, but the the point of the title um, and the point of the book was that what um, Rennie saw as most dangerous was not your you know personal prejudice, though that's bad as well, but not just you know I hate black people or I hate Chinese people or whatever. It was the systemic racism that was built into our system that put one entire people at disadvantage in comparison to another. And certainly when you have any institution where there is an exercise of power, you're always going to have the potential for individual racism to breed into a systemic racism. And it seems to be that that's what's happened in uh, the American police forces because you know you have situations where you have black police officers behaving like this, and that that is something that you know I I am absolutely flabbergasted by. But that's not a case of individual racism or individual prejudice. It's just that they're caught up in this entire systemic racism that just takes them with it, regardless of how they feel about it. Uh, and that's not to excuse their actions in any way whatsoever. Um, but I just think that we need to recognise that we're building systems um, that are reflective of only one colour of people. And that is why we are having this sort of um, this discontent and resentment and fair discontent and resentment built up in society by the people who aren't. Uh, central to that system. And just as once upon a time the uh, the police forces, the American police forces were uh, dominated by Catholics, which led to resentment um, from the Protestants, um, you have situations now where the power in police forces is certainly um, uh, represented more keenly by uh, the dominant um, white um, people or this this uh, part of society, um, and 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 you have have this situation where people don't feel that the police force is their police force. So I think that's the difference. Where you feel that your your police force is not your police force, that they're not there to protect your will, to protect your society then they're the enemy. They're there to oppress and to hold you down and to stop you doing things and to um, to uh, imprison you. Um, so you have then this real problem in, in democratic society because I don't think anyone would argue that we could do it with, we could actually continue in a civilised society without a police force at all. Now, of course, this this has also, if we if we think about uh, the current context, this is also brought up for so many people. Uh, what is to be done? How do we engage? How do we make meaningful change? And and for Roland, Edna, Clyde, and Milt, as they um, as they mix amidst America's elite, they're very much struck by 
the world situation that they see the disparity of wealth, a country still recovering from the depression, and that leaning that leading them to lean towards conservatism and becoming more insular and perhaps not paying attention to what's happening overseas. And this brings up an old torment for Roland, and he asks himself, how did one prioritise persecution and discrimination? He is, of course, thinking about uh, what he sees as the rising tide, what we, what we now historically understand as the rising tide of fascism in Europe. It's also yeah. a particularly poignant question now amidst a global pandemic. We are, we are all, I don't think there's a single person who isn't feeling some pressure from the current situation, uh, but also wondering, you know, how can they meaningfully make, uh, pay attention to their own life, but also uh, be part of broader movements? Do you, um, do you, and, ha- you know, and, and we saw it beautifully with the, la- with the marches for Black, Black Lives Matter, where, um, and, and generally the, the, the kind of people, particularly in America, who turned out for those marches were liberals, mm. uh, small-l liberals in, in the American term of uh, progressive thinkers. Um, and, and certainly those people who weren't black who turned up were, were, were liberals. And yet they were also the people who were most uh, firmly in support of um, the lockdown, the social isolation and in America, they they have a term where they call it lockdown to love because mm. uh, what they see it as is we're locking down, not because we're trying to protect ourselves, it's trying, we're trying to save our old people. And it's because we love our old people that we're locking down. Um, so you saw that. You, you saw the conflict between we're trying to socially isolate and keep the virus under control, but this is really important. This is a a point in history. This is a time when we could tip over and make a change that was real. Um, and the way people dealt with that was really encouraging in that they didn't they didn't um, retreat, mm. but uh, but neither did they completely uh, disregard the the pandemic and the need for uh, to be careful. So you you had. The marches go on, you have masks, everybody wearing masks, you had hand, hand sanitizer being handed out uh, in Australia. In, I know in America uh, things, things deteriorated a bit, but certainly the intention was to go out there, uh, particularly in Australia, to, to make your voice heard, to say this is important, we care about this. We think that this is so important that it matters as much as lives or it matters as much as the pandemic, um, but to do it in a way that tried to accommodate the, the need for family social isolation as much as possible. But it's, it's, again, the dilemma that Roland faces and we all face with a lot of things because you have conflicting things that, <coughs> me, that demand your attention. Is there a... Is there a question or is there a balance that has to be struck between making those moves toward change and then also safety? Because there is there is a really interesting uh, moment or a decision that is made towards the end of a testament of character where I, I guess we would, we would in the vaguest of terms say that safety had to be prioritised because as individuals – the group were not able to make perhaps the change that they would like to see um, for an individual. Yes. 
so they had to um, they had to do the best they could. And to, yeah, they had to do what they had to do what they could to keep uh, keep an individual safe. And and that and that required sacrifice. It required um, it required people compromising principles. Um, but it, it's just um, and and I think that people face those decisions um, not every day, but in their life they do do face that decision of principle versus safety. Um, you know, in, in the in the end, you do what you can, and you do what you have to. Um, and, you know, it's it's often well. I mean, if you look, for example, at um, the time of slavery in America, uh, there were a lot of people involved in the underground railway, um, and with helping escape slaves uh, get out of the country to Canada. Uh, those people were breaking the law. Similarly, in World War II, there were people hiding Jewish people and they were breaking the law. That doesn't mean that those people were lawless. Those people may, in fact, have had a very deep abiding respect for the law. But there are points when you just have to make a decision mm. and you have to to decide whether the... The, what, what's right is more important than the rules. Or you have to make a difference between what is uh, what is wrong and what is less wrong. Mm. Uh, so it, it's, just, it's just one of those human problems where people generally are always leading uh, a change in the machinery of government and law. Mm. Um, so there are always going to have to be people who make those decisions, uh, who decide to go outside what the strict rules are in order to achieve the greater good. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not something that you want everybody doing willy-nilly. You don't want, you don't want people deciding, well, you know, um, a speed limit's... Uh, uh, are not right. <laughs> I will push the envelope and drive at 200 miles an hour, um, just just because. Um, but the the but on the other hand, when when push comes to shove and there are things like human lives involved, invariably people will make those decisions. Now it is always interesting to me. When I read one of your books, your impeccably historic role in Sinclair books, to to see what insights you're going to give me uh, on the rise of, I guess, fascist thinking in our current time. I mean, it's it feels like it's getting you know sort of beyond something that we can just have an indulgent curiosity in. But in in Testament of Character, you have Milt reading It Can't Happen Here. It's a 1935 dystopian, yeah, a 1935 dystopian novel by Sinclair Lewis that sort of uh, many are seeing as as prophetic of Trump's increasingly autocratic presidency. That book ends in civil war. I'm also brought to mind of your terrific non-Roland Sinclair novel, Crossing the Lines, where you craft a fantastic blurring of writer in reality. And I'm... I feel remiss that we've never had a conversation about that book, and we'll get to it eventually. But I wondered how you deal as both a writer and a reader when reality and fiction blur. 
Oh, I embrace it. <laughs> well, in in terms of in terms of what's happening in the world, um, I, I I'm horrified by it. I'm aware of it. In, in some ways, I write the Roland Sinclair mysteries in the hope of understanding more. Mm. In, a, in the hope of exploring how it happened last time and maybe identifying a point at which we could have jumped off uh, and diverted from the path mm. uh, down which we were heading and we are heading now. Um, I, I'm hoping that this time round um, things are different. It certainly felt like in the Black Lives Matter uh, mini revolution was happening that there was a resistance and there was something pushing back and maybe this time you know we, we wouldn't just simply lay down and let it happen and not that we did last time but it just seems to uh, roll, roll, roll into 1939 regardless of the fact that there were people out there even then um, talking and warning and and trying to raise awareness and action. Uh, we have the added added problem now in that not only are we dealing with um, political upheaval and a particular political swing to the right, uh, we're also dealing with um, the pandemic. So there was a pandemic then, but it came a little bit uh, before. Um, so we had the Spanish flu, so they were over it. By the time things started, uh, the fascists started to really get on the rise. Uh, but we're also dealing with, you know, a really serious climate emergency that they weren't dealing with as well. And again, it's, it's one of those things where, where you're looking at this crash of priorities um, in terms of in terms of focus and done this and, and wanting to say things. So if you look at the pandemic where where now we're all using takeaway cups and plates and so on and nobody's allowed to have silver cutlery and nobody they discourage you to uh, reuse things. Um, and we had just got to a point before the pandemic where people were starting to bring in their own cups and you know, uh, reuse and recycle, and nobody was using plastic anymore. Mm. Um, and it seems it seems like you've got this real clash where the where the environment needs us to do one thing, but for the sake of public safety, we're going in another direction. Um, so it, it, this time it's a little bit more con- convoluted uh, because we have got ourselves into an even more precarious position than we were in the 1930s. Um, for I, I, you know, it, it, one of the things is when I started writing the Rolling Sinclair book, I didn't actually think we were tracking so closely. Um, I, I wrote them. In the beginning, I was, I was really intrigued as to what led to, to the war and, and the Holocaust. And I was, particularly intrigued with how the German people could have allowed it to get to that stage, how, how they could have lived down the road from a concentration camp and, uh, and not done anything. And I think I've said to you before, um, you know, the world decided to show me how that can happen um, because we started moving in that direction as well. Yeah, I mean... 
I think it's. I think. It's, I, I was going to say. I think it's interesting to see that um, there are there are cultural movements that are, are happening now, and they're, they're being led, whether cynically or otherwise, by by businesses to kind of start to try and, and tear down or pull back overtly or covertly um, racist brand names and and things like that, and. The, the equally um, an opposite bitter reaction from people who seem to no longer care that they are are being racist because they want to defend these these institutions that were you know in hindsight never okay but it's it seems you know just yeah. a, just a casual glance at the news today and I'm not you know it's it's there's no point really it's, naming it's too many in the names. Sand stuff. yeah and and you know look they they probably don't honestly care about that statue. They probably honestly haven't looked at that statue in years and years, but it's a line in the sand, um, and and they've decided to fight on that side of it. Um, so I, I I know exactly what you mean. It seems to be, and certainly there we have the added um, added impetus in, nowadays in in that the, the the pervading nature of media in our lives, um, and certainly. Uh, the manipulation of the media. Funnily enough, um, in in the nineteen um, thirties, uh, the fascist movement were were talking about the media being unfairly left wing, um, and uh, certainly when Hitler came to power, the first thing he did was he he tromped on all the media outlets in Germany, and he got them all under control to. To put his voice out and his propaganda out um, in, uh, in their set. And so when I hear about things like the defunding of the ABC, yes, I'm alarmed um, because it seems to me that it, uh, that uh, whenever we move towards authoritarianism, the fa- first thing that happens is we start to shut down voices of opposition. Um, and it Alarming and, but you know, and horrifying. Heartening that there is resistance, but you know, sometimes it's it's so um, you you get to a point of despair because you you know that there is so much resistance and it doesn't make any difference. They still defund. Um, they still shut down. They still uh, shout people down. They still you know put up put up statues and you know divert money to the glorification of past wars um, rather than um, funding things that matter to people now or funding things that could actually change lives. Um, and it's, you know, without without getting to, into the details of politics, there seems to be happening in the way that governments are behaving nowadays that are very consistent the way that government behaved in the 1930s in, in the lead-up. Um, in, in another context, the question you asked me was, um, you know, how, how I deal with that movie. Outside that, outside the, the, the recognition of patterns that have occurred before, um, in terms of how, how I deal with my characters walking into my life, well, as I said, I embrace that. I I, uh, I enjoy that part of it. Um, I enjoy the, the uh, letting those lines blur 
um, so that I can um, make friends with the people in my head um, and hear their voices clearly and talk to them. Well, it's it's re- it's reassuring to know that you are not trapped somewhere within the pages of your book. He makes an oblique reference to crossing the lines. As I said, I I, I read that um, recently, and one day we'll have to have a conversation about it. But this is this is an opportune time to tell people that um, I am speaking with Solari Gentile, and we are discussing a testament of character. It is book ten in the Roland Sinclair mysteries, and we were we were there talking about. Uh, the media, but I think it's also important to to mention that in this time, it is really important to support the arts as well. Uh, and Solari is a fabulous artist. Her books are wonderful. She also um, is published by Pantera Press, who are an incredible uh, small publisher. So, look, if you are looking for a way to support the arts, you could do worse than going out and buying some of her books. Um, Solari, look, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time again, chatting about pretty much my my favourite series in Australia at the moment. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's always been an absolute pleasure and you know, and a challenge to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I always find my brain actually being very exercised by your insight. That's it for this great conversation with Solari Gentile. Solari's new novel is a testament of character. It's the latest in the Roland Sinclair mysteries, and it's out now through Pantera Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal Land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app. It means you'll get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.